Hello, and welcome to This Day in History, where we talk about history, not history. I'm your host, Taylor, and again, I have my sister with me, Emily. Say hello, Emily. Hello. <laughs> Is that how you normally talk? Hello, Emily. <laughs> So this episode, we are focusing on the year 1937. And Emily, what, tell us, remind me, what happened in that year or around that year at least? All right. 1937. Let me paint a word picture for you. Ooh, a word picture. Yes. So 1937, that is right in the middle of the Depression. (gasps) Dun, dun, dun. The Depression, Yes. The Depression started in 1929. It lasted in 1937 due to the drops in stock prices. Unemployment was at 23%. That is roughly every one of four people who were unemployed. Wow, that's a lot. I know, right? So really a large amount of people were unemployed. Franklin D. Roosevelt, he had just started his second term. Second out of four Wow. Yes. How much do you think a gallon of milk cost back then? A nickel. Everything costs a nickel. No, I'm kidding. A nickel was my guess. Close. It was 10 cents for a gallon of milk, 10 cents for a gallon of gas. A new car cost $760. A movie ticket cost 25 cents. Ooh, big bucks. Versus, you know, like... 12 bucks or whatever it costs at now. Least, yeah. At least, yeah. The average salary was around $1,700. And you could buy a house for about $4,000. What was going on around the United States and around the world? Well, tell, tell me, please. I will tell you. The Golden Gate Bridge opened in San Francisco. Ooh, have you been there? I have. I, uh, Mom and I took a, a bus on that bridge and it was very windy. The Hindenburg, which was a German airship, burst into flames in New Jersey and killed 35 people. Snow White just got released into theaters. Ooh. Uh, the Hobbit was published. Oh, which that's cool. That's pretty exciting for me because I love Lord of the Rings. The Duke of Windsor married Wallace Simpson, which was very scandalous. Japan invaded Manchuria, which is part of China, uh, leading the path to World War II. And any science fans out there, Hans Krebs published his cycle, also known as the Krebs cycle, which I had to memorize a few times back in my school days. Oh, and then last but not least, Corn Puffs. The Corn Puff cereal was uh, invented well, in that's 1937. That's the most important one of all of those. Mm-hmm. So Taylor, we have a special guest. Oh, yay, our special guest. Who is uh-huh. that? So you might know him. His name is Alan. Uh, He's also known as Dad. And (laughs) he's going to tell us what he thinks about when he hears the year 1937. So let me go grab him. Hi, Dad. Hello. We're talking about the year 1937. So what do you know about that year? Well, you realize I wasn't born yet. Oh, really? Yes. I know. I'm not quite that old. 37, I would think that is... Roosevelt's administration. He was uh, trying to get us, us being the, the U.S. economy, out of the, the Great Depression. And I think you know, that probably overtook most of the uh, of life as you know it in, in the uh, in, in America. 
Yeah. I think of depression. I think I think of the WPA program. It's a program that Roosevelt put in place that uh, helped stimulate the uh, economy in the, in the U.S. by basically hiring people to do public works. They would build roads and bridges. They're basically got a, a check from the U.S. government for different projects that they were a part of. One of my first jobs was working at a, at a swimming pool, a managed swimming pool, and it was built by the WPA. There's a big plaque on the wall that said, told the, the date. It was a, w, you know, a work project. That's cool. So mostly I, th- I think of this is pre-World War II. So it, World War II is really what got us out of the Depression. And so this is kind of not probably the worst part of the Depression, but serious downturn in the economy. A lot right. Of out of work, a lot of people out of work. Yeah. And then in Europe, was there like ramping up for war? I think it was on the fringes. Uh, you know, I know that Japan was conquesting, trying to, uh, you know, spread out of, outside of Japan. I know that Hitler was in the beginnings of, I'm not sure of the date, but, you know, it was when he was uh, trying to come to power, mm-hmm. you know, and going through all the, the stages. It, you know, it was a, a world depression. It was not just a U.S. depression. It was the whole world suffering. People starved to death in the United States during the Depression. Mm-hmm. People in Arkansas starved. I mean, literally starved. You know, it's, it, was, it was horrible. You know, you had a, a flux of uh, movement of people going from one state to the other trying to find employment. It was, um, it, it was probably one of the, it was the worst economic disaster, you know, that happened in this country. Um, yeah. And the Dust Bowl just made it so much worse, too. Yeah. Right? Because like, that, that, that led into it. I don't think it caused it, but it, it sure didn't help. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, thank you so much for jumping in and telling sure. us about this. Thank you. Thanks, Dad. So going back into the episode, on this day, July 2nd, 1937, is when Amelia Earhart, the famed aviatrix, went missing. Emily, <gasps> did you figure it out? Eventually, yes. I saw her name pop up and I said, oh, there she is. Yep, that's who we're talking about today. One day, I'm going to make it where you don't guess who we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, so we had to backtrack a bit. Just to recap who she was, she's a really known, really well-known aviatrix, which I think that word sounds really cool. Uh, she's known for being the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean. Now, Emily, what else does comes to mind when you think of Amelia Earhart? Missing person, plane <laughs> crash, never found again. <laughs> She was born in Atchison, Kansas on July 24th, 1897, so just before the new century. Atchison, Kansas is about one hour northwest of Kansas City, where I used to live. She she died, or was declared dead at least, on January 5th, 1939, but we'll get to that. Her birth name was Amelia Mary, and she was named after her two grandmothers, and she spent a lot of her time growing up during the school year with her grandmother, I believe, on her mother's side. And she was a, definitely a bit of a tomboy. She spent tons of times outside, tons of her time outside uh, playing, being, you know, really rambunctious. What year was she born again? 1897. Wow, 1897. So imagine being born in 1897 and being a tomboy back then. Yeah, I think her mom was pretty pro, like, let her do what she wants. Don't make her, you know, right. so I think she had a, her mom on her side, definitely. Good. And she grew up, like, in the Midwest, so she definitely had that Midwest accent. I'm going to jump up, uh, jump forward a little bit. During the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918, she worked as a nurse. So she would have been about 20, 20 25 years old during this time she worked as a nurse helping people who were sick 
but she did eventually catch the virus and eventually developed into pneumonia and then maxillary sinusitis. Oh, no. Like a sinus infection, correct? Oh, yes, that is correct. <laughs> Emily, how do you treat a sinus infection? Um, So basically, if you come in with signs of a sinusitis or like, you know, sinus inflammation, most common cause is going to be viral versus allergic. Therefore, you do not need antibiotics. However, if your symptoms are lasting longer than about 10 days, if you're having fevers, if you're having exquisite pain over the sinus area, then you likely do need antibiotics at that time. So back then, it sounds like it was probably pretty bad where she needed she needed antibiotics because also they didn't really have like vaccines and everything. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. However, back then when she was doing this, they didn't have the typical treatment options for a sinus infection. So she had to undergo, undergo an operation to go and clear out the sinus and to get rid of that in- infection, which sounds horrible. And then this kind of was with her for the rest of her life. And then she later on, she again had to go, undergo uh, a a surgery or an operation at least to try to deal with this infection. So it must have been pretty bad. Maybe she could have uh, really utilized one of those neti pots. And <laughs> those real, well, those the thing back then, when were those invented? <laughs> like Pam from the office when she gets that teapot mm-hmm. and Dwight's like, oh yeah, this is great to clean out your sinuses with. That's true. She needed a, a neti pot slash teapot, tea kettle. Yeah. So if she had an actual bacterial sinusitis, uh, then that means she needs a long course of antibiotics, many of which probably were not invented or very reliable back then. But for most people, they do not have a bacterial infection. It's most likely aller- allergic or it is a viral sinus infection. So, so that's why when you go to your doctor and you say, I have a sinus infection, they say, no, it's not. You don't, you, don't, you don't need antibiotics. Wait it out, etc. So at one point, she went to the Canadian National Expedition in Toronto with a friend. And at this event, there was a flying expedition. You know, flying was fairly new. So it kind of makes sense why they, you know, they were doing expeditions with flying and showing people. Her and her friend went off by themselves at one point, And there was a pilot in this red airplane that was like, kind of messing with them and diving at them and Amelia whenever he was diving at them she stood her ground and she said later that that plane spoke to her so this is kind of where the seed of flying was set hey Taylor do you like to fly no (laughs) I don't like it at all you don't I've gotten better at it recently you have that's true I have never claimed to enjoy flying you know. <laughs> in 1920, she booked a passenger flight in California, and she said that when she got to about 300 feet, she just knew she had to fly. I'm not sure what that exact height had to do with it. but I feel like we as a family are not risk seekers. We are not adrenaline junkies. Yeah, so we've talked about like going on the amazing race and who would be on what team, and we've come to the conclusion that if there was skydiving or bungee jumping that we would be like okay we're done like we I don't think any of us could do it I mean I think it would really depend like if it was either we don't do it or we're gonna be completely out of the competition maybe or like hey if you do this you're gonna get a million dollars no matter what then okay but I just I just can't think I don't think I could like make myself jump off of of a moving plane I can't deal with that. I know. No, no. The point point is that none of us could probably do this. (laughs) 
Yeah. If I was, uh, you know, if it was me being a young woman in the, you know, early 1910s, 1920s, and they're like, hey, do you want to be in this very rickety wooden structure that's a plane and that you like these are early yeah, yeah early like we don't have planes. we don't have little regulations do you want to get up there and fly yeah. in the sky i'd be like hell no no we're so much da- more dangerous yeah i would swim with sharks before i would do this i would i i would do that now probably. well you would, I, you, I would, you, you would swim with sharks in a cage that's what I you could, mean i could swim with sharks out of a cage i think Okay. I could definitely do it. I've already done it in a cage. Anyway, yeah. So the point is that we're not very adventurous people. Anyway, (laughs) so the fact that the fact that you are covering her is um, quite admirable because I can appreciate her bravery. In about a year later, in 1921, she attended flying lessons with the help of her mother. It was about a thousand dollars, which I think would have been a lot of money given the the year. And during this time, she ended up cutting her hair short, that more of that like pixie type cut. I'm not exactly sure if it's okay. that short of a pixie cut, but you know, short hair. And I've actually never seen her with hair that isn't short. I've only seen her with short hair. And it's probably because after this point, she, she became famous. Yes, I just looked at pictures of her and I do see the iconic haircut. Yes, it's like a... I would call it a grown-out pixie. It's a yeah. little bit more of a shaggy cut, but I think it suits her really well. She has like a nice, like long face and like pretty good cheekbones. Yeah, I think she's like yeah, she's, she's and pretty. it makes sense, right? Because when you're in the airplane, it didn't always have it wasn't encased, and so if you're like if the air is flying, like you can't get that long hair in your eyes. Go get it out of your face. So just cut it short is what she did. I've heard it's good to not have hair in your eyes when you're flying a plane. I would imagine. She also got a leather coat, which I bet looked real cool. And I would love a coat. I bet she had a really cool one, and I would love to own one. Uh, and she thought that it looked too new. She wanted to be worn in. looked like she had used it a whole bunch. So she started sleeping in it to kind of get those creases. Kind of reminds me of when you get a baseball glove, and they tell you what to, like, wrap it and put under your mattress or something like that. That well, sounds like- so uncomfortable. I bet it was so hot, and they, they, they probably didn't have it air conditioning in Kansas. Well, she, it could have been in the winter time, though. True. Maybe she was waiting for the winter time. She looks pretty badass with her, she does. With her leather coat, I will say. Yeah. I wonder if that leather coat still... I guess she was probably wearing it when she died. On October 22nd, 1922, so about a year later, she ended up setting the world record for the women's altitude flying record. So, like, the highest altitude a woman had flown. It was at 14,000 feet. And I do believe this record was broken by another woman Fairly quickly, but she did make that record. So for context, the common cruising altitude for most commercial airplanes is around 33,000 to 42,000 feet. And I think usually when you're on a plane, they're like, we have reached 10,000 feet. You can now use your phone right. or whatever. But also, I don't think, I don't know if it was encased. So it, it kind of makes sense it wouldn't be that high yet. Right. Well, how did she get all this money to be able to afford the flying lessons Different the planes. I think on her mother's side, they had money. Her father did make a pretty good income, but he unfortunately succumbed to like alcoholism, and he ended up losing his job. And the family went through some pretty hard times when she was, I believe, kind of high school age. But I know her mother at some point did get some money from her family side once I believe her father had died like Amelia's grandfather. So that might have been the one my money came from. After she became famous and everything, she was much more comfortable financially. But I would imagine this money came from her mother's side. I, okay. 
And a year later, in 1923, she earned her pilot's license, which seems like she could have should have already had it, but okay. Uh, she was the 16th American woman to do so. And then a year later, in 1924, she became engaged to this dude named Sam Chapman, who has, she, she'd been dating this man for a few years now. And then we're going to flash forward a little bit. And this is a different person. So in 1927, Charles Lindbergh became the first person to fly solo across the Atlantic. And this was like a big, big deal. This guy was an innocent celebrity. You may have heard of him. Charles had crossed the Atlantic. And so there was a flurry of other people trying to do the same. And this included five attempts that included a woman. Now, some of these may have been a woman who was flying or a woman who was just a passenger. And I'm not only sure which one's which. So... Let's be warned. So I have them here. Uh, and this is in order. So there was first an English princess. Her plane just disappeared. Never found it. Yikes. Yeah. Next was an actress. And her plane just never took off. I think it was too heavy. Then there was an, a woman who was an American beauty contest winner. And she ended up being rescued at sea. Then there was a woman who was the niece of Woodrow Wilson, a president of the United States, and her plane also disappeared. And then there was a fifth woman named Elise Mackey, I think her name was pronounced. She was an aviatrix. And unfortunately, they just found the parts to her plane. And they pointed out here that ice was a really big problem for planes. So it might have been a weather thing where a lot of ice maybe accumulated on the plane, something similar. And then caused it to crash. And so clearly this is a very dangerous thing to attempt. There was a woman named Mabel Bull and she wanted to be the first. And this is what she said. I have no wish to pilot an airplane. That's a man's work. I merely want to have the honor of being the first woman passenger to make the transatlantic trip. Hmm. Don't like that. Yeah. She was apparently pretty rich in all these jewels. And she wore these really these two really big diamond ring so she had been called i guess by the media the queen of diamonds by the press and so she wanted to be the first woman to cross the atlantic on a plane and another woman came onto the stage too her name was amy guest she was a relative of winston churchill she was really daring and adventurous but this challenge wasn't for her she was kind of passive in her life but she was going to make sure she was going to find someone who was worthy to be that first woman to cross the atlantic and she wanted it to be an american back to amelia she got a call from some dude and he was like hey do you want to do something that's aeronautic and that might be hazardous. And like, do you want to come in for an interview? And her first thought was, this dude wants me to move alcohol for a bootlegger. Because this was during Prohibition. And I bet she would have done it, FYI. Anyway, she actually pressed him. And, and he said, how would you like to be the first woman to fly, fly the Atlantic? And she was like, yeah. There was a bit more to this, but she had to go through like an interview and everything. And it was kind of weird. But... There was, uh, she was not going to be the pilot or the co-pilot. She was just going to be there. It's just, she's cargo, essentially, practically. The pilot and the co-pilot, Wilmer Schultz and Lou Gordon, they were getting $20,000 and $10,000. And how much do you think Amelia was getting? So, I bet she was getting $3,000. She was getting zero. Oh, What? Yeah, this was like a terrible deal for her. And it was super dangerous. But she was an adventurer. She wanted to do it. And so she said, okay. Uh, and she really, she knew that this was super dangerous. And so she actually wrote, she she told very few people that this was going to happen. She told her fiance and a few other people, but 
she didn't tell her parents. And so she wrote these letters to her parents in case she died. And it's so sad. So to her mother, she said, even though I have lost, the adventure was worthwhile. My, our, our family tends to be too secure. My life has been really, has really been very happy. And I didn't mind contemplating its end in the midst of it. And then to her dad, she wrote, Dearest dad, hooray for the last grand adventure. I wish I had won, but it was it was worthwhile anyway. You know that. I have no faith that we'll meet again in meet anywhere again, but I wish we might. Anyway, goodbye and good luck to you. And then she also wrote a, like a longer one to her sister. And then she wrote out like things like in terms of her will and everything before this happened, she was very aware of the fact that she could not come back from this. It was very dangerous. The plane that they were on was called Friendship. And it took them several days to take off. It seemed like they had to wait for good weather and it was really heavy. They had, it said they had 700 gallons of fuel and fuel was very heavy. Uh, So they took off on June 17th, 1928 from Newfoundland. I think that's how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. And they, at one point, they had to fly like right through a storm, and they landed in South Wales, and they like ba- just barely made it with enough fuel, so they were just right on track with that amount of fuel they needed. Oh gosh! So Amelia became an instant celebrity. She was the first woman to cross the Atlantic on a plane. But she didn't actually do anything. She was just a passenger. And she said that she felt like a sack of potatoes. I'll be a whole sack of potatoes. <laughs> I'm just here as a sack of potatoes. So she was just like pointing out to the press and everything. Like, I didn't do anything. I was on the plane. But still, she was a celebrity. And she actually, she took this time to kind of go all around the country she, I think she wanted to clear her head. She wanted to fly, too. Because, again, she didn't get to fly on that trip. So she went around the country. And this is a few different locations she went to. Pittsburgh, where she landed in a field. And she rolled into a ditch. I think she thought it was for polo. But it was, like, a normal field with, like, ruts and stuff. And so she kind of rolled into a ditch. Belleville, Illinois. Muskogee, Oklahoma. She landed somewhere uh, west of Fort Worth, Texas. And at this point, like, the map... She had just flew away. So she wasn't really, didn't really know where she was going. She was, she landed in Hobbs, New Mexico, but that, like she overshot where she was actually going apparently. And then uh, Yuma, Yuma, Arizona, and then Long Beach, California, where she landed in a, a field that had a whole bunch of tall grass. And she apparently like the whole plane rolled over. She would, whenever she landed at these different locations, she would like talk to the locals and basically convince them to give her like a place to stay and some food. Like, I don't, I don't need it. I'm so tired of hotels. Oh, I like, I'm jazz. And she, again, she was a celebrity, so they did it. And then she flew all the way back home. So this was her time to kind of do what she wanted. She got to be a pilot that she always wanted to be. I think that speaks a lot to her character if she was able to convince a lot of people that, hey, I'm normal. Like, let me stay in your house with you. Like, that's yeah. pretty. I mean, that's she must she have been really pretty charismatic. I bet she was. And like sweet. And she worked for this company. Now you'll never guess what company this was. Let me guess. Let me guess. I'm going to say Chrysler. No. No. She worked for the magazine Cosmopolitan. Whoa. Cosmo was out? I guess so. She was an aviation editor that was invented for her. She was the first of the company. That was, she was the first one for the company. I would be willing to bet she may have been the last. (laughs) Isn't that neat? Guess what year Cosmopolitan um, started as a magazine? 1885. 
1886. Oh, I'm so close. That's so close. She also, at one point, I don't, I don't have the date here, but she also had her own clothing line. And I would love to find, like, in a vintage shop, something made from Amelia Earhart's line. All the shirts were made with parachute silk. Doesn't that seem so on brand with her? It seems on brand. I'm not sure how comfortable that sounds. Well, wouldn't it be, like, silky? I'm not sure. And remember how I mentioned she had a fiance a fiance <laughs> she had a fiance shout out to uh shout out to yes well they broke up so yeah Aww. in 1928 they never actually got married and i think they were just like drifting apart amelia was someone who didn't want to be tied down but there was a different mm-hmm. dude named George Putnam and she had known him for a while he was a pr guy he was kind of involved in her um flight across the atlantic um that one I just mentioned, and he was married, and he, he did get divorced, though his first wife got remarried very quickly, so she wasn't, like, left in the dust. And they were married in February of 1931, though she was very apprehensive about getting married, and she made it very clear that she was not going to be, like, a traditional wife. Right. So she was married to George Putnam and she made it really clear that they were a, their relationship was mutual and they had dual control. She was very wanted him to know that because they were getting married, she wasn't going to change her life. Uh, the next big thing in Amelia's life was in 1932, where she was the first woman to fly across the Atlantic solo. This was on May 20th, and this was. To the date, five years after Charles Lindbergh's flight across the Atlantic. So she purposely did that. You know, she's married to a PR dude. So hmm, they had some plans. She was flying in her red Lockheed Vega 5B. It is in the U.S. National Air and Space Museum in D.C. You probably would recognize it. What's What's the name of it again? A Lockheed Vega. Oh, yeah, I see it. Oh, yeah, that red plane. No, never in my life would I be like, oh, yeah, that's amazing. Okay, well, now you do. Now I know, but I'm like, <laughs> I would have just been like, oh, that's a nice big red, that's a nice little red plane. That's a nice plane right there. <laughs> right there is a nice plane. I, I do declare it's a nice red plane. plane. Anyway, okay, now you know what it looks like. Uh, she landed apparently in like some farmer's field and it like, kind of freaked him out. This made her the first per- person to fly across the Atlantic on an airplane twice. Ooh, a different Ooh. world record. And apparently during this trip, she met the Prince of Wales. So I, I believe cool. this would have been David, and that's the one who abdicated. I believe that's who that would be, because he was the pr- the Prince of Wales. So he met, she met that dude. And her fame after this increased even more. She broke other records. She was the first person to fly, or the first woman, I can't remember, to fly from the mainland U.S. to Hawaii. And that made her the first person to fly abro- across both uh, oceans, the Atlantic and the Pacific, which is pretty cool. And she became friends with Eleanor Roosevelt. Okay, that tracks. I can right? see that. They have similar vibes, I think. And Amelia was later hired by university. Now, can you guess what university she worked for? Columbia. No, it's a pretty good guess, though. She worked for Purdue. I don't know why exactly. She was an advising faculty member. And I believe the number of women who were enrolled in the university increased when she started working there. So I found Amelia Earhart's Cosmopolitan Magazine debut, or rather when they introduced her. So this says, announcement, 
of the appointment of Miss Amelia Earhart as associate editor of the Cosmopolitan magazine was made yesterday from the office of Ray Long, blah, blah, blah. Miss Earhart, the first woman to cross the Atlantic by airplane, will conduct a department devoted to the popular phases of aviation. She will assume her new post at once, it was said, but the appointment will not interfere with her career as a pilot. Mm-hmm. Okay, Miss Thing. Okay. I like it. I feel like she probably wasn't being ladies. How to spice up your sex life. <laughs> How to find a man. She was like, I think I. someone said that she told them not to marry too early. <laughs> yes, tell them that. That's good advice. <laughs> Whoa, is she my new role model? Like, she might be. Amelia Earhart was pretty great. I really like her. When I cover her on TikTok, those videos almost never do well. And I'm surprised because one, I thought everyone knew about her, right? But I don't know if the newer generations know about her, but also not everyone that watches my videos is from the US. So it's not fair for me to expect someone in the Philippines to know who Amelia Earhart was because they're not they're not from the US necessarily. True. Project was to circumnavigate the globe on a plane, which is a big deal. And so this would be 29,000 miles. Obviously, she can't do this in one big trip. So it right. was made up of several different legs. Okay. You've probably heard of this, right? Yeah. I think I saw the map and it was a lot of different spots and it looked quite treacherous. It was. She was not going to be alone. She was with a navigator named Fred Noonan, who you never hear about. No, he died along with her. And she was flying the Lockheed Electra. And I believe this was pro- provided by Purdue University because, again, she worked there. She was aware of this danger again. And someone, I'm not sure it was some person, put their input on the the successfulness of this flight. So what's the chance that she was successful? They said it was about 50-50. And she replied, I hope your guess is a good one. No one really could expect better chances chances on such a flight. Actually, I'm not worried about the percentages except for my navigator, meaning Fred Noonan. As far as I know, I've got only one obsession, a small and probably typical feminine horror of growing old. So I don't feel completely cheated if I fail to come back. Hmm. So she knew what she was doing. She knew what would right. happen. She was very aware of the risk. She wasn't just like some like, la la la. Like she was like, I could easily die. I'm taking this chance. I want to do this is how it comes off to me. Yeah. And that's a pretty scary thing to, I think, like put down on paper back then. Because right. I, I feel like nowadays, you know, you do anything and they're like, this can result in death. And you're like, okay, whatever. That's fine. Like, I'm not going to die. But Back then, she knew that was that this was quite dangerous, and it sounded like she was kind of had already come to terms with it a little bit, right? But she was concerned and felt bad about the risk that her navigator Fred Noonan was taking. So the original plan was for them to move west, start in California, and move west. The first from being from Oakland to Honolulu, and they did that track. But when they landed in Honolulu, like the plane messed up, and I believe that apparently the landing was pretty rough. And the book I read said that she had to she turned the, like the engine off super quick so it wouldn't catch on fire. 
so I, I believe it, there was an issue with the plane. And so they couldn't continue right then. They had to wait. They had, so they took a ship back to the mainland US and then had the ship, or the, sorry, had the plane repaired. And they s- decided to go the opposite direction. They, instead, they were going to head east and they were going to complete that Hawaii, California leg last instead of first. So it, the planes changed a bit. This also apparently made it a little bit better for missing the monsoon season. They ended up scrapping this other radio that used Morse code because her and Noonan were not particularly good at using it and couldn't transcribe more than like 10 words at a time, I believe. And so right. I, don't, I don't think it really worked very well. So they just got rid of it. They were going to be working with the U.S. Navy because this was a serious endeavor and they were going to be working with a ship in the Pacific called the Itasca. So that comes in later. So again, they're going to leave from California, move east. They left on June 1st, 1937. And they made a lot of different stops. So go ahead. So from Burbank, California, so they went to Tucson, New Orleans, Miami, San Juan, Puerto Rico, Carapito, Venezuela, Paramaribo, Suriname. You know, some of these countries have different names than what they Mm -hmm. have now. And so that might cause a little bit of confusion. Fortaleza, Brazil, Natal, Brazil, San Luis, Senegal. From Brazil to Senegal is whenever they went across the the Atlantic Ocean. Senegal, Gao, Mali, Mali. Oh, they went to Chad, which is a country in Africa, the Sudan, Ethiopia, Pakistan, India, Myanmar, Thailand, Singapore, Malaysia, a few places in Indonesia, and then Port Darwin, Australia, and then Leh, Papua New Guinea. Mm -hmm. And so again, some of these locations have different names. They might say like Dutch East Indies on like the Wikipedia page uh, or Burma, which is now Myanmar. Mm-hmm. And there were some that were like several locations. And at least one time it seemed like they had to return to a location due to repairs and because there was a monsoon coming. So there's a little, little bit of repeats. Um, at one point when they were in India, she called her husband George and said that she was having personnel problems. Now, he interpreted this as possibly Fred Noonan having issues with alcoholism. And I don't want to like tarnish this man's name. I don't right. have evidence that he's now he was having issues or that he was flying under the influence at all. So I, I that's what he thought. He was like, hey, you should probably cancel this. She didn't, and she took it really seriously. So I think if it was a huge deal, she would have been like, no. The stop in which she disappeared was between Leigh, New Guinea and the Howland Island. And before she left for, from Howland, she sent a telegram to her husband, George. So uh, that day she sent a telegram to George before they left from Leigh. And it said, radio misunderstanding and personnel unfitness probably will hold one day. Have asked, uh, for forecast for tomorrow and so this has been interpreted but that one she was having technical issues because her radio that she had on her plane and the radio of the itasca that navy ship from the u.s didn't have this the right frequency shared for them to work together and she thought that they had they could work on the same frequency but it didn't seem like that was the case and there was a fuse that was blown, that they changed on that radio. And they said that that was, you know, it was fixed, but often a blown fuse is a, is a signal that something else is wrong. So it's likely this radio was messed up. Now, the personnel on fitness, some hasn't have interpreted that her, again, her navigator, Fred Noonan, maybe was drinking. That's what's been suggested that he maybe he was having an issue. But right. it was pointed out that the day before they left, 
they both went to bed early and they were ready to go. So there was no, like, he wasn't out drinking that night before. So on June 29th, she and Fred left Lay. And there's actually a picture of them together. And it's like the last known picture of Amelia Earhart with Fred Noonan on the island of Lay, New Guinea. So it looks like a photo of her next to him in front of the plane. And she kind of has this, like, nice grin. She kind of has, like, a smirk behind the eyes. Like, hey, like. I'm excited. He looks like a, a white man smiling. He's like a middle-aged man. Wait, so how how old was she when she was on this flight? She was t- 39. Okay. Yeah, she looks great. She's wearing a jumpsuit. Um, and then she's wearing a button down, like a dark button down underneath. And she has like a big belt buckle. She looks excited. She looks like she's ready to go and she's like looking forward to her flight. Who who do you think would play her in oh, a movie? Interesting. Okay. Emily Blunt, maybe? I don't know. She has a really interesting face. If any of our listeners, I'll, if any of the thousands of our listeners out there have any thoughts, please send us a DM. They left Lay, New Guinea on June 29th, and they were supposed to arrive on Howland Island on July 2nd, hence the day that this is being posted. And this little island is a speck, like a literal speck on the Pacific Ocean. It's two miles wide by a half a mile. That's tiny. And the Pacific Ocean is crazy big so for this little bitty speck she needed help that's why the itasca the ship was gonna help her there the navy could hear her but she couldn't hear them so she was sending out these signals but she wasn't hearing anything back which must have been so terrifying so there are a few different radio recordings or whatever of what she said she said about 17 hours into the flight she on the radio, she said, please take Barry on us and report in half hour. I will make noise into microphone about 100 miles out. So I imagined her, like, touching the microphone, like, making, like, a weird, like, yeah. sound. And then a little while later, she said, it was like, about 30 minutes later, she said, we must be on you, but it cannot see you. But gas is running low. Have been unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at 1,000 feet. That's pretty low. And then about 30 minutes later... She said, we are circling, but cannot see island, cannot hear you. Go ahead on 7,500 kilocycles with long count, either now or on the scheduled time on half hour. It's like a certain kilocycle. So she was testing different kilocycles to try to hear them. And then she received one transmission the whole time for this flight. And then she said, for, for I guess responding to this, she said, we received your signal, but unable to... Get minimum. Please take bearings on us and re- an answer on 3105 kilocycles. So again, a different kilocycle. The very, this is the very last transmission from Amelia. We are on the line of position 157-337. We'll repeat this message on 6210 kilocycles. We are now running north and south. And that was the last thing they heard from her. And so the Itasca ship was near the island and they were actually pumping out all this black smoke to try to make it really visible. But she never she never saw any of it. Hmm. So could she have not uh, landed on the water or was her plane not set up for that? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. So I believe they they did outfit the plane to have uh, the ability to land on water. The plan was that they could get onto a life raft if they had landed, and they were so this whenever they were searching for her in Newton, they were looking for the knife the life raft, but they think that apparently the waves were really high. So they said like ten 
plus feet. And so that would have could have caused the plane to crash before they could get on the lifeboat and sharks. So it's very possible they never even got into the lifeboat. Yeah, the ocean freaks me out. The search for the plane started almost immediately, basically. FDR was the president during this time, and he had the Navy go out and look for her. The Itasca was already there. I believe other ships were sent out there. And they covered roughly... 250,000 square miles. So this is basically the size of Texas, a little bit less. Oh my gosh. So it sounds like they really tried. Like they put a lot of effort and money into finding her. They spent $4 million looking for her, which (gasps) this was during the depression. And if you remember, a gallon of gas back then was 25 cents. So do the math. And even Japan jumped in to help, apparently. The surge was officially called off on July 29th. So this was, so July 2nd to July 29th, they were searching. They finally said, okay, she's, she had to have died. And her husband, poor George, was looking for her next Mm -hmm. year. And then he finally said, okay, she has to be dead. Uh, Noonan, Mm -hmm. Fred Noonan was declared dead in 1938. And then Amelia was declared dead in 1939, which again, makes no sense. They were on the same plane. I mean, do they think he, like, floated off on one of his, like, (laughs) barrels of booze? And no one really hears about him, you know? Yeah, I never knew she was... I thought she was by herself, so... That year, she was was 39, so... When she crashed, she was 39. There are some conspiracy theories. So the the big conspiracy theory, like the part of the most prominent one, is that they crashed landed on an island called Nicomaruro, or Gardner Island. And it's south, uh, over 300 miles south of uh, Howland Island. And here they think that they crashed landed because there were these weird radio... Not signals, but like recordings or whatever, or of that of who they thought was Amelia, but by that was picked up by some random people that she may have basically crash landed on the coral reef of this island and then sent out signals. So that's where the radio signals come from. But then that ship sank and they went to the shore and then they lived as castaways until they died. And um, there were Hmm. different things collected, such as like some. A jar that had like freckle cream was for freckle cream and then a shoe but then apparently this shoe was not the same size as Amelia and a skeleton but the skeleton had been identified first as a native man so like a Polynesian man and then as an European woman this was like in the 40s Mm. but then this skeleton disappeared so no one knows where it is Uh, so we can't look at it and do DNA testing and there were a few other different things like a a part of a, a navigational tool that maybe Noonan had used. There's a theory that she was captured by Japan and that she was either executed or forced to work as um, for their propaganda department. Wow. It had these like radio, these women who would like be on the radio and tell the American soldiers not to fight. So there was like a theory that she was forced to work as one of these women. I think they're called Tokyo Rose. Again, Japan helped in the search. So, you know, who in the. And then there's another theory that she was a spy and that she didn't actually die. She was there to get intelligence on Japan because it was in the Pacific. And then she actually led out her life in the U.S. under a different name. I think the most realistic outcome is that she crashed landed on the ocean. I think it was probably just a mistake. But I, I really, really like Amelia. I loved covering her. People don't really like her or don't really know about her as much. And I think she was a great role model. She loved, she was big into feminism and like she wanted women to do what they wanted to do and 
and not have their gender hold them back or make other people think it was going to hold them back. Well, that's a very sad story of this woman, but I think it's very inspirational because she seemed to just kind of do what she believed in and what she was passionate about. And she didn't let any of of the societal norms stop her. Yeah, that's the end of the episode of Amelia Earhart, This Day in Herstory, July 2nd. So to put into perspective, the first woman to go to space was, it was um, a Russian woman named Valentina Treshkova. I'm I'm probably not pronouncing that right. And she's actually still alive. Um, And that was in 1963. So Amelia went to, Amelia flew across the Atlantic for the first time as a woman in 1932. So about 30 years later, you know, not even a lifetime later, uh, the first woman woman to go into space, which is cr- that timeline's crazy. That's not even the first person. That's the first woman that went to space. So I want to keep that timeline in perspe- perspective and how quickly the technology developed. Right. Well, there you have it. That's what happened this day in history. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving a five-star rating. That really helps us out. And share this episode with your favorite history BFF. Bye. Bye.